called a chest pass, right? And I used to get them in the face. <laughs> I just wanted to know that she respects the game of netball. What even is netball? This is the sport evolving at its very best. Unbelievable. Can you believe it? It's all over! New Zealand have won the World Cup! Welcome to the Kiwi Netball Show. The focus today is on netball stats and two of the biggest gurus are here to talk about numbers. First, Todd Miller, Sky Sports New Zealand netball statistician and Michael Hutchinson, stats analyst at Nine Netball and involved in the men's netball scene in Australia as well. Todd, you've been to quite a few netball World Cups. Has it been five now? Yeah, I've been to five World Cups and been very fortunate to obviously um, be involved in a sport that I love and to get the opportunity up close, you know, at the best event in, you know, the sports um, pinnacle. It's been pretty amazing to have that opportunity. And how did you get into it? Uh, I actually started umpiring when I was eight years old. My mum played um, old Edwards Park courts in Adelaide before um, the new venue that they they play at in Adelaide and um, pretty much one of the club ladies just decided that you know I was a little bit of a menace I guess um so they decided to teach me to umpire so pretty much that's where it began for me and probably the transition into stats was probably around 1990 when there was a netball nationals uh, in Australia that was held in Adelaide and I started doing scoreboard um, attendant work and pretty much from there started doing tv a couple of years later for channel 10 who covered um, the local league in Adelaide pretty much loved the sport and uh, progressed from there really Michael, what about you? How did you you get into this area? Uh, Basically, a random text message from um, Sue Gordian back in 2017. They had basically run the first year of Super Netball without a statistician. And after the prelim final, I got a text to say, or to ask whether I was planning to make it up to Brisbane for the grand final between the Lightning and the Giants. And the Vixens had just lost the prelim. So it was kind of, kind of a sore moment for me to um, be questioned whether I wanted to attend the grand final. But um, Sue um, said that there was a possibility of a role for me in um, involved in the broadcast. She knew that I was someone who had written a lot about netball over the um, previous five years or so um, and was certainly someone who used and, and looked at um stats as a way to tell the story of, of how a match had played out. So um, I guess I was the guinea pig for Super Netball um, and the grand final in 2017 was the, was the guinea pig match. Um, but the feedback was that it, that it turned out really well and, and it's been rolled out across the country over the past two years. So, Todd, you were at the 2003 Netball World Cup. That was your first one. Um, just the way the stats must have evolved over years. It must have been a completely different ball game when you went to the World Cup in Liverpool last year. <laughs> Absolutely. Funny story about Jamaica in 2003. I was actually working for ABC, who were the broadcaster, and um, they were doing most of their stuff from Sydney back in Australia. I was on the ground um, inputting stats into a system and then calling it back to someone in Australia that was replicating what I was doing so that they could use the on-screen graphics Being a non-commercial network, they couldn't use graphics that obviously had sponsorship all over them. So they were basically doing their own thing um, back there. So an amazing experience to be a part of that World Cup. And, Mm. um, yeah, just such a different sort of 
setup to what we saw in Liverpool um, last year and, you know, the full integration of stats and um, what was an amazing World Cup all round, really. So, Todd, you became involved in the Thunderbirds, the Adelaide Thunderbirds. How far back was that? So, start of the Commonwealth Bank Trophy, which was obviously prior to Commonwealth, or sorry, ANZ Championship competition, uh, the Trans-Tasman League. So, I um, did a lot of work with Marg Angove, who was the head coach of the Thunderbirds at the time, and I was working with the team directly. So, would go to every training, would go to every match, uh, and basically provide information that was more relevant to a team. So often what you see on TV isn't always, you know, what a team would use. They may have different structures and different understanding of, you know, where a turnover occurs or where it's actually to be assigned. They might have a set play um, and something that you would look at on TV and think, oh, that's, you know, the wing attack's fault might actually in their eyes from a team point of view be a centre's fault because they haven't stuck to the structure or plan that they've wanted to do. So being a part of the Thunderbirds was an amazing opportunity um, and, yeah, great team with people like Kath Harvey-Williams and Rebecca Sanders, Jackie Delaney and, yeah, amazing experience. And you got a mention in Jeeva Mentor's book, Leap. She talks about a phone call in September 2007 between Jane Woodlands-Thompson, the coach at the time, and yourself, and she said there was going to be a new Premier League starting in Australia and New Zealand. She went on to write... Todd wanted the Thunderbirds to sign me. He had spotted me before the World Championships and knew that if Adelaide Thunderbirds waited until after that tournament, I'd be receiving offers from most, if not all, of the teams. I was 23 years old at the time and I was about to embark on the biggest move of my career. How cool is it knowing that you had a part in bringing Jeeva Mentor down under? Yeah, pretty incredible. Um, it's it's one of those things that you do. You see certain players at stages of their career and you see something in them and a, a player that you think, you know, is going to go places. And um, I don't think you could have predicted where, you know, Jeeva's ended up with her career. It's It's been incredible and obviously the pinnacle of winning a Com Games. But, um, yeah, it was, I was very fortunate to be, you know, involved with Jane at that time when, you know, they were setting up the, the ANZ Championship and to have the ability to start up a new team and, you know, work from scratch and three years later win a title in, you know, 2010 when you've, you know, been a part of that formation of a team was, was amazing. Did you also have something to do with Carla Borrego making the move to the Thunderbirds? I, I did. <laughs> so... 2003 World Cup was where I actually saw Carla for the first time. She was playing for Jamaica and she was sitting behind um, Elaine Davis, who was, um, you know, probably the, one of the greatest shooters for Jamaica at the time. And Carla was a 19-year-old kid who basically disappeared off the netball scene, as a lot of Jamaicans do. They go to America, get a basketball scholarship and kind of you never see them again. Um, but she was someone that sort of I just kept in the back of my mind. And, you know, 2010 or t- 2009, there was an opportunity to... Um, sort of, you know, look at an opportunity to get a new shooter into the Thunderbirds. And I just said to Jane, you're going to have to trust me on this. And <laughs> I booked some flights and I went to Miami and I messaged Carla on Facebook and I said, right, this is a random conversation, but would you be interested in playing netball in Australia? And she's like, sure. So I went and got a rental and met her in a little uh, restaurant in uh, Fort Lauderdale, I think it was, with her husband. And yeah, pretty much just went from there. And got Jane to send me over a contract and before I left, got her to sign up and that next year they won the title. So yeah, pretty amazing experience. So Michael, in your role, you use stats to analyse the game. What kind of things are you looking for? What are you trying to learn from the stats? The majority of the time it's sort of um, assisting the commentary team in trying to tell the story of what's happening. So I listen quite intently to what 
they're seeing on court and the things that they're picking up to try and see if there's a stat that complements that um, or if potentially there's um, a big difference in the margin, look for something that, where there's big discrepancies in terms of turnovers or accuracy. Um, yeah, I, I don't see the role um, in terms of trying to push as many stats out as possible. There are some games where you might get one or two stats called out in a quarter and you've got to try and not take it personally because you've done, you know, all this sort of um, looking at, at the screen for 15 minutes and you end up with, you know, two bits of information that's gone to air. But when you think about the amount of work that's gone into preparation, the fact that there's a producer and a director in their ear, they've got to read stuff on screen, you've got to throw to ad breaks and timeouts, um, stats aren't really the overall purpose um, of commentary, it's it's to really just assist the narrative being played along. Are there people literally sitting on the sideline entering data? How does it work on game day? Yeah, in Australia, champion data will sit on the same side as the, um, as the two teams and the umpires and the score bench. So they will have a caller and a receiver, essentially, someone who is watching the game and describing, you know, wing attacks and a pass receive, um, goal goal attack feed, goal shooter goal, that sort of thing. And they'll have someone who's inputting that data in real time. So Channel 9 use that data for their on-screen stats as well. That's how it essentially works over here. Todd, is it similar in New Zealand? Yeah, um, what Michael described is replicated in New Zealand so that the champion data people do sit courtside with the scorers. Um, but we actually have our own system at Sky that we input ourselves. So uh, pretty much the same setup where there is an inputter and a, and a caller which gets fed into our truck, uh, which is a different graphic system. And basically the same thing that Michael described as, you know, I would sit there and I would input, but I'd also be feeding information to commentators as well um, as inputting the stats at the same time. It's one of the most challenging sports. I've been fortunate enough being in New Zealand to work across a lot of other sports and netball is one of the fastest sports to try and display data and tell a story because it does move so quickly. So these callers have to decide, for example, whether it's a bad pass or bad hands. So they're judging whether the person should have caught the ball, whether it was catchable, either that goes under bad hands, or was it essentially the fault of the passer and then it comes under bad pass. So that's quite a skill. Yeah, definitely. I think one of the things that you know we've worked out over the years is that umpires make very good callers. Um, because they have an intimate understanding of the rules of the games. Their ability to understand what's going on, it's just a slight difference in how they say it um, as to what they would if they were an umpire. But um, that's obviously a good background to have to um, be able to make a good caller. So, Todd, what brought you across the ditch to New Zealand? Uh, moved over in 2009 and it was actually an opportunity to work for Sky on the netball. I'd worked at the 2007 World Cup for ABC uh, in Auckland and got to know the Sky people and uh, an opportunity came up with someone going and doing an OE. So I uh, got a phone call and um, basically got asked would I like to come over and be involved. And all they could offer me at that point was just the ANZ Championship season. But, you know, there would be other opportunities that came up. So um, pretty much I've been here 11 years and uh, had some incredible opportunities um, along the way, really. I got to go to the Rio Olympics with Sky as a pretty much a, a researcher slash keeping track of the New Zealand athletes. So um, they knew where to send field crews and be across um, everything back at Sky mm. and make sure that, you know, we're at live events and reacting the way we should. 
Michael, Suncorp Super Netball obviously introduced a two-point shot this year. Um, looking at shooting accuracy isn't quite as simple as what it used to be. Are there any trends emerging in relation to the super shot? Yeah, well, one of the, I guess, the narratives around it was in the hope that there would be greater long-range shooters back, maybe in Australia, but definitely in the competition because there had been a reduction of long shots over a number of years. And I had done some analysis on the 2009 ANZ Championship, which was the first year that champion data was used in that league, Mm -hmm. where there was 24 long goals scored in a game. Comparing that to last season, there was only 14 long goals per game. So it's less than one long goal per goaler per quarter. And I think the reason why the the super shot was introduced was to sort of entice goals to have um, another crack, essentially, given that it would be worth double. But what we've actually seen this year is actually even less long goals scored per game. Um, the majority of those long goals are actually, or the long goals that are scored, are actually being scored during the Power Five period when the super shot um, time is actually activated. So, seventy-nine percent of total long goals um, taken during the, the sorry the Power Five period, which is only twenty minutes or thirty-three percent of the game time. Mm. So, there's a little bit of a fallacy around or um, a skew in that sort of hope that we would see that the long shots being encouraged across 60 minutes of netball, it's actually really only happening in that power five period. And there's a huge fluctuation um, between the teams in in terms of that, whereas the Magpies are scoring 60% of their long goals during the power five period. Gabby Sinclair is quite happy to shoot from long range um, pretty much any time in the quarter or in a game. Whereas you look at teams like the Swifts and the Firebirds and they've shoot... um, their long shots during the power five period on 97 and 94% of the time. So um, a huge fluctuation in the risks that are being taken by teams and it's paying off um, for some more than others. But overall, you're saying that there are less long goals being put up this year compared to last year? Yes, and a reduction in accuracy by about 20%. Um, and, And that's probably a reason too, being the defenders are, defending the shot because they know it's worth double, whereas last year they they weren't really interested. You know, if there was a rebound, there was a rebound. And if there wasn't, um, then that wasn't too bad because it was still only worth one goal. Right. So they might deploy two defenders over that longer shot. Yeah, and the Lightning, particularly good exponents of that with, you know, the double jump from Carla Pretorius and Pumza Mawaini. So, um, Mm. yeah, it's really intriguing to see how how that's panned out so far. But given that... um, one of the metrics from the Super Netball Commission, I would assume, would be that they wanted to see an increase in long goals scored per game. It's, it's full and flat on its face at the moment. I have been surprised to see a few of the games where one team has been down by around six and there's three minutes to go in the game and there's really no way they can win scoring the singles. But some of the teams are still just stuck to the single shots, even in that situation. And I, and I guess that's perhaps then a little bit of maturity because if you, you do know that you're not going to win, mm. um, is there going to be much of a discrepancy in terms of your percentage at the end of the game if you are going to end up only losing by, you know, three or four or if you actually are risking taking those super shots and not scoring any at all and then that's going down the other end of the court and your opposition is scoring a couple more super shots and you're losing by 12 goals. Um, you know, we've seen a couple of um, matches this season that... 
have been won. I think there's four matches so far this season that have been won where a team hasn't scored any super shots. It's up to the teams really whether they um, are weighting the importance of the super shot in terms of their their gameplay. I think we've seen um, some teams falter when they've sort of tried to push um, the subject in terms of making it all about the super shot when they probably should have. Um, just taking it quite easy and, and a lower risk shot in just scoring one goal to, to see the scoreboard ticking over. But, um, you know, when the rules only been introduced a matter of days before the competition started, you can expect that this season probably hasn't panned out the way that um, mm. clubs have really inspected in terms of being able to, you know, portion time to, to really think this through and, and come up with a game plan specifically for those last five minutes. I do wonder if the Suncorp Super Nibble Commission, if they, if it is determined to forge ahead with a super shot, does it need to be a bigger incentive? Do they need to make it worth three? Scrap it all together. <laughs> what you thought of it, Michael? What's your opinion? Yeah. Oh, no, I hate it. It completely changes the way the game's being played. I, You know, there's the thought that you're increasing the rebounding in the match and but I think there's more turnovers there's it's scrappier in the last five minutes I think you're you're trying to build athletes to be 60 minute performers and you're trying to build consistency across 60 minutes you're kind of eroding that in you know a third of every quarter if you're trying to um, change a scoring system that you know we've already we've seen a reduction in 20 um, 20 percent accuracy um, and there was I think 73 super um, shots scored in round one and that reduced to I think in the mid thirties for a couple of rounds. So the excitement, I think even for teams in, in part has worn off on that front as well. Um, mm-hmm. And they're more likely to be playing the game plan that they've, you know, been training for 11 months for. Yeah. It sort of reminds me a bit of fast five. I think in the early stages of fast five, when it started in New Zealand, there was, you know, it was new and shiny and teams were trying it. But I think as you got to the end of the third, you know, fast five in Melbourne, I just think it became a little bit, out of shape the game just sort of unraveled a team got ahead and that was kind of it it just was a really pot shot opportunity to try and catch up rather than there being any shape to the game yeah i agree michael have there been any games where the super shot has changed the result so would the result have gone the other way if it wasn't for the super shot uh there's three matches so far round two the swifts and the fever both shot 70 uh sorry both shot 65 goals but the swift shot one more super shot than the fever. So that meant that they won 73-72. In round four, the Firebirds and the Giants drew. The Giants only put up 52 goals uh, and the Firebirds 58. So the Giants actually had nine super shots to three. Uh, And in round 10, the last round where the Vixens drew with the fever, um, the fever actually had eight more successful goals, but the Vixens had nine super shots to one. You know, I still think that there's the hope out there somewhere that, um, you know, a game's going to be won, you know, on the last three seconds on the back of a super shot. And we actually probably saw it the other day with the, the Lightning and Giants game on the back of Steph Wood's shot um, to sort of create a bit more interest and intrigue around it. But, um, yeah, it hasn't probably proven to be the big game changer that, that some have, have hoped it might be. Todd, how good's your memory? Do you rely a lot on recall to come out to come out with these stats, or you're searching a database, or is it a bit of both? A bit of both, really. There's there's an element of um, you know you know a margin or a you know run of something that's happened in the back of your mind. You're like, oh, I think that's getting close to the highest score or to the biggest mm-hmm. win for a team. Um, so often you refer to things just to confirm what you're thinking is correct. But um, obviously there is a certain amount of knowledge that you have um, in your head that 
for some reason it just stays there um, because you're engaged in it full time and you understand, you know, the information that you're dealing with. How much do you enjoy uncovering information that none of us know? Like, do you stumble across stuff in the course of your work? Um, yeah, I think I think the opportunity, what I've also worked on with Netball New Zealand as a part of the Heritage Project, maybe not stats, but just tracking down old vision and old um, data that, you know, maybe everyone, you know, thought has gone forever. But um, a random conversation with my mum a couple of years ago was like, oh, Bev was a you know Australian diamond and her sister played and I'm like oh that's that's really interesting so I literally rang up this lady and said um, do you happen to have any vision of the 1960 test between Australia and New Zealand she's oh yeah we have a home movie my dad actually took it and he literally had a couple of minutes of two tests from 1960 that um, Bev Sharple's sister had played in Beverly Cox one of our Australian diamonds um mm. so two and a half minutes of the Melbourne test and Sydney test with the New Zealand team doing a harker and match play so yeah not a stats point of view but certainly uncovering other little gems like that which part of the history of the sport. Michael do you think there's a whole lot more potential in netball for stats to go into new areas? Yeah I think there is in, particularly in terms of plotting stats so where the penalties are occurring and where the turnovers occurring um, and time sequencing on that front as well. But I actually did, um, given that you gave me a heads up for this question, I did ask some um, some netball aficionados and some and netball stat nerds um, in Aaron Delahunty and, and Jenny Sinclair, and they came up with um, a couple of, of their own that they'd like to see for their reporting purposes um, mm. anyway, which included leads covered. So if, you know, a wing attack or a goal attack is going on a, off on a drive into attack, are their opposition actually covering their lead so that renders them, you know, sort of ineffective or, or useless in receiving the ball? So that would be a, a defensive stat, a tick for the defender if they manage to shut that drive down? Yeah, and I think defenders don't get credited for, for doing things like that, which, mm. you know, in part can, can go a long way to, um, you know, determining outcomes in a game. And, and generally speaking, teams um, that have the best defensive records in competitions go on to win titles. So to have something like that to sort of be able to um, complement other data would be um, really helpful. Another one was number of passes to goal for every goal that is scored. 60 passes, whether it's four passes, and, and where are those passes being taken? Is you know is it only taken four passes from a throw-in? Has it taken 35 passes from a centre pass? And group defensive wins. So in terms of a goalkeeper perhaps um, tipping or deflecting a ball, but the goal defence gets the rebound or the goal defence deflects and the wing defence picks it up. And, and working in unison because there are things like that that teams train for. You know, when, when you see tips and, you know, players dangling off the end of the court and, and being airborne and throwing the ball back in or, or tapping the ball back into a teammate, that's the sort of stuff they actually train for as well, which, um, you know, one or the other is is essentially credited for but not necessarily both so um so yeah there's there's a few little things that perhaps um brainiacs want to want to um know a little bit more about or or be able to see and use um which would be really helpful but um yeah i certainly think the plotting of the current stats i think time sequencing potentially would be um helpful as well particularly during the power five period with the super shot as well about um where turnovers are occurring or um, deflections are occurring whether teams are actually stopping the ball before it gets in the circle because we have seen quite some big discrepancies in terms of the scores that are that are being scored during the Power 5 period as well. Todd, can you see more advances in the area of nipple stats? 
A yeah, big one for me is an efficiency rating for um, attacking players um, that obviously when they might touch the ball 100 times, how many of them were actually efficient? Was it going backwards? Was it going forward? You know, how many people have to reset to then get their position on a circle edge? Um, so I just think you might have handled the ball 100 times. Was 20% efficient? Was 25%? Is there a philosophy from the team that they always have to go backwards? I, I think things like that for me um, about an efficiency of a player could tell a really cool story uh, and whether your focus is actually on defending them forward or back. Um, so I, I'd like that. My other one that I'd really like to see is actually a heat map of certain positions, and that's probably more a technological thing than a stats thing, but just where certain positions on the court go and where their pressure and heat points are, uh, where they feed from. Obviously, when you've got a tall shooter, um, you can actually feed from further off the circle. So I just think that would be a really interesting introduction to the sport. Get ready.